Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Stop dying, Chuck. Okay. See, I need Chuck, that intro dying. to know the name of our show. I'm going to start Stop That's... Dying right now. We yeah, did the Dopey podcast, and we didn't have the intro, so I didn't even know it was the Don't Die podcast. But now when I hear that, it was a I tribute. know. It's a, yeah, so we did a tribute. But Mike played a live version that I didn't recognize. Anyway, <laughs> it's true. But when I hear our uh, intro, I realize, like, yeah, I started a rehab with Evan and Jared. It's a great rehab. Here's what I always say about aloe treatment centers. And th- you got to understand, it's as close to what I want a rehab to be as you can have nowadays. Right? Okay. And that, I'm as honest as they come. So it's as close as you can get to rehab nowadays that I want. Right? But, but <laughs> within the limits of what actually <laughs> constitutes a rehab in 2018, yeah. you, is it what I would want rehab to be? No, your circle fits somewhere in that square. Yeah, but uh, but but I really started to realize like what is special at all? It is the best that I've ever seen. I know them all. I know promises and passages and summit and, and aspire can you imagine i can name them all avalon creative care <laughs> i'm cliffside <laughs> i know all of them i know what kind you would have too it would be the craving control out in joshua tree <laughs> where you just kidnap people yes. and take them out there <laughs> yes stick well, them in the desert well I, I did it one time here's an interesting thing I, 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 there was like six addicts that were really highly motivated that I had at Los Encinas in like 2004. And I said, hey, you know, you guys, I live out in Joshua Tree. Why don't we do something cool where you guys just come out and we'll, I'll teach you some things that Gloria Scott taught me and, and Shenzhen Young taught me. So, you know, the people who taught me, I'll just kind of, I'll write it down and I'll try to remember, you know, and we'll just all get together and do this. And we had a mm. three-day retreat, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We went to the mountain. We climbed a mountain. <laughs> I ended up being scared <laughs> of climbing. <laughs> you went on a hike up a mountain? Yeah. Why? Yeah, yeah. Well, because to go watch the sunset and to get centered and all this kind of stuff, you know, I be- I'm a big... Hippie? Center yourself. No, I'm a big... This is not how human beings were meant to live. True. I, well, I agree it's with not. that. It's not. And so all of this dysfunction and all this dysregulation and all this illness and all this sickness and mental illness and all this addiction is, is people who can't hang with this stuff. Right? And I was a person who couldn't hang with it. The main thing I couldn't hang with was um, like capitalism. Like I didn't understand... Like the combination of capitalism and Christianity. I didn't understand it at eight years old. I couldn't understand why people sleep in the, on the ground and have no food. And children have no food. And children have no, they don't have sweaters in wintertime in a Christian nation. I, and I've been tormented by that for 47, 50 years. Right? I just, it's a lie. It's a lie that capitalism and Christianity can live side by side. It's a fucking lie. You cannot acknowledge it, and you can disagree with me, and 99.99% of the people disagree with me. I, I understand all the complications of, of modern society, but we can just be kind to each other, right? 
And so, so you know, I think I think a principle at Allo is to be kind and be cool to the clients and don't be. What do you mean, be cool? Punitive, cool, <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> That's what led to my firing. That's what led to my firing in my own rehab as clinical director. That's a little inside joke. I used to. I, There's nothing wrong with compassion at all, is what you're saying. People th think they're smart. That's what I've noticed in rehab. You're going to be <laughs> smart. You're going to be smart and figure out how what will help this person with their substance use disorder. It has nothing to do with being smart, getting sober. It has nothing to do with it. And it has nothing to do with how smart the person who's helping you is. Because the person who helped me wasn't all that brilliant. Oh, hey. It wasn't you. <laughs> they knew it, but they <laughs> yeah, but they knew how they they knew how to meet you where you were. They and that, knew themselves. That takes a lot of understanding. How about this? To thine own self be true. They knew themselves, and so they weren't so focused on being smart and saying the right thing and having Bob as a sponsee. I remember I went through all these sponsees. They would assign themselves to me. I don't know if this happened to you because you were a big relapser <laughs> too. So I became this basket case pathetic person who could never get sober and so I'd show up again after like a couple months run and somebody would take me on as the challenge to sponsor me like I'm gonna I'll take a crack at him wait a second you, <laughs> wait you actually went back out for several months at a time it wasn't yeah, a weekend yeah, and then yeah, back yeah, to rehab yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Months, wow, what are the odds months. Well, you know, I would, I had. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd make it a year or more sometimes. Well, this is back when you had to pay out of your own pocket to go to rehab. So not everybody was going to rehab willingly. I remember there was an old Sam Kinison joke, which I loved Sam Kinison. Uh, but he had this thing of like, this was in the 80s, like rehab is $10,000. If you have $10,000 left, you're not a drug addict. <laughs> yeah. <huh? laughs> No drug addict has $10,000, right? Yeah. So, so back when you had to pay yourself, you would have to have good reason to have to pay $10,000 to go get off of drugs. But, and that's what led to, I kicked dope at home. Mike and I kicked dope on the road. You can kick dope. It's not that hard. It's not mm -hmm. that hard. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's hard to stay off of. Right. Right? But nowadays, everybody's so focused on the symptoms of withdrawal See, everybody knows this. It's going to be four or five days of misery, no matter how you slice it. But, but you know why? Because that's, unfortunately, that's where the, that's a lot of money. A lot of money in detox? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the biggest. What but I don't see, you think the so addicts? Many people, you can run a six-bed detox only and make as much money as people do running big rehabs. I know. But don't you think that the addicts are so focused on the detox symptoms? Uh, I'm going to be really sick. I'm, I've been on Suboxone for seven months. And I'm going to be this, really sick. And I'm going to need, need this. this and I'm going to need that. Gonna, like, dude, fucking come out to Joshua Tree. I'll show no, you yeah. what you need. <laughs> you need a good I, hike. Son, you've never detoxed in jail, son. You need a high, I like that. But here's I, what you no, need. I'm here's still you feeling need. highly symptomatic. You, you know, are not. You just said symptomatic. Symptomatic. <laughs> oh, when the first time a client told me they having they they're feeling anxious, I said, "Where did you learn that word?" <laughs> you like, are you're not. Like, you didn't even get your GED, and all of a sudden you're talking all <laughs> fancy words. You know what I mean? So. So, you know, Mike knows, I used to take guys out to Joshua Tree and just, we'd just be at my house and they'd be sick. And so here was my Bob detox at my Joshua Tree house. I give you your own room, uh, cable television, uh, lots of Gatorade, benzos once in a while. 
at my discretion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds highly illegal. (laughs) I'm so lucky nobody died. Oh, my (laughs) God. That's got Wyland out there. Holy oh. fucking shit. Wait, beep that. And, the premise, that and the premise is that you're out so far that they cannot get yeah, away. Yeah, there's no way. Because I lived... Well, when I did it, was at the other house, Mike, off Quail Springs Road, by, in downtown, you know, up above by the entrance to the park. Even that, like, they weren't going to walk the six miles into Joshua Tree, the, the first house I did it at. And I remember I did it with... My friend John, I did it with Scott, I did it with a bunch of people, I did it with my friend Matt, and I would just take them out there, and I would say, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, the whole drive out there, like, no, totally, do you have a doctor? Yeah, I got a doctor, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I would get them out there, (laughs) in my house, I don't know if you know Joshua Tree, you have to, like, get the house all set up. Right, so I had this um, swimming. Now, was this before your model in La- in Hollywood, the one that y- you openly said oh, we're not going to give you drugs, we're not going to give you, and it failed miserably? Yeah, this is before that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've failed miserably at rehab many times. Good for you. As an entrepreneur, nobody <laughs> wants to go into a rehab that says we're not going to give you anything. Oh no! <laughs> well, they, no, I no, knew. No. I knew yeah. initially that that because I had I had benzos. Right, so what more do you need, right? So, so I would take them out there sometimes with a friend or two people. I remember we did it with a couple of friends of mine. And I went with this other guy. So, and I'm reassuring them. Yeah, there's a doctor, at Betty Ford Center, blah 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 blah. blah. And I get them out there. Betty and Ford then, Center is not even. <laughs> it's like, are you kidding it's me? Like Forty miles away, dude. Junkies in LA don't know where Palm Springs and Joshua Tree are. They just know you're going east on the ten, right? So. So we get them out there, and then it literally takes like an hour to get the house set up. You got to get the electricity on. You got to get the. You got to open up all the windows to get the hot air out. You got to get the oh cooler going. And then I had this swimming hole, <laughs> pool. It was a cement. What does that mean, swimming hole? It was a. a it was a hole. cement. It was a cement hole in the ground that had a drain, but no pump or anything. So you filled it up with water. You, and and it would last like two days until mosquitoes start to get in it or bugs yep, or yep. whatever. So you got to fill up the water. And then finally, after about an hour, the guy would be like, so are, you know, this is like, you know, typically it'd be like eight or nine o'clock at night. And they'd ask, so are we seeing the doctor tonight? And I'd be like, oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I think he's Maybe. gone. I think he's gone home. We're going to see him first thing in the morning. And you could just see the panic on their face. And oh, I go, but, but guess what, dude? I've got like 10 benzos. So you're going to be okay. Oh my God! Can I have one? I always give him one right then to relieve the anxiety. Here you go. Here, Here you, you go, go, buddy. Come on, let's start a bonfire. <laughs> let's start a bonfire. And they once they get that one benzo, they just did heroin at eight hours ago. You know what I mean? But they get the one benzo, building a bonfire. This is gonna be awesome. I'm gonna fucking do this, bro. I'm gonna fucking do this, Bob. I'm gonna do this. This is so good. And they'd cry sometimes, like, Bob, I can't believe you're doing this for me. They were building the bonfire. We'd build the bonfire. And then, like, about midnight, you could just see, like, them looking at the lights down in town, like, how far is that? <laughs> 
Can we get one of those guys on the show? Yeah. Can we get like yeah, and just yeah. talk about this whole experience <laughs> that, that was happening good. out here? <laughs> some of them, yeah, some of them are sober a long time. You're not even supposed to start treating an opiate withdrawal for like 24 hours anyhow. Yeah, but you got to give them... It's, I know, it's but it's... Symptom, it's, it's, it's I thought you were the king of symptom management. <laughs> I know. What's it called? It, symptom it's, management. It's, it's so psychosomatic, most of what they're going through. It's the fear of what they're going to go it, through. It was... I would wait for them to have that panicky like oh my god what have i done the first sign i saw and i would give them a benzo and then that that created a therapeutic bond now like the, bob is gonna take care of me you should have just called it the hills have eyes recovery or something <laughs> <laughs> it was good it was fun it was heavy it, it was it was you know because you get into some you go through something like that and and i was basing it on working with others in in the big book right like I was gonna right. take it, I was gonna take Junkydom and do what Bill Wilson described in the Big Book of AA, which is they're gonna live with me. I'm gonna fucking nurse them back to health, and we're gonna and we're gonna yeah. be connected in a way that you can't be connected to a for-profit rehab. You can't. I just think rehab is trying to be. Uh, most of the people, like I know Warren, me, I, you know, I know Richard Tato and Cliff. So I'm trying to do the right thing. We want patients to succeed. It's just one or both of your hands are tied behind your back by the insurance industry and or the patient payer's satisfaction survey or, you know, sadly enough, greed. I just think that it's really hard to, to have excellent rehab these days. But here's the good news. Rehabs are going broke. Insurance is paying 20% of what it used to. The, the bad actors are already out of the business. I know half of them. They're already real estate agents. All the bad people. <laughs> they are. That's what literally. they become. Yeah. That's what they do. They go from rehab to real estate agents. They're like, what are you doing? And they don't dress the same or drive different cars. They look exactly the same, except for they're no longer rehab operators. They're real estate people. Well, Come good. On. They're not killing people. Wow, yeah. that's fucked up. Commercial real estate was one, one guy told me. Excellent. People I said, what have, you been, what have you been doing? He goes, well, I still have my sober livings, but I'm getting into commercial real estate. I was like, oh, good for you. Goddamn. See, Chuck still has that chip on his shoulder. They kill people. <laughs> no, drug addicts kill themselves. They assist people in killing themselves. I don't know about that. You know, PRC got closed up a couple of weeks ago. Really? Yeah, did you know that? No. Oh, God. Well, you know, PRC, I, you know, all this shit talking and a lot of stuff's going on. There was a lot of deaths there. And I, I don't know all the details, but it was in the newspaper yesterday. Um, I heard rumor and all this kind of stuff. But, um, but I just know thousands of people got sober at PRC. And it was very affordable. You could go to PRC for 1500 bucks, right? How many fucking rehabs? Uh, all the people that own all the rehabs that are criticizing PRC right now, they wouldn't even answer the phone for $1,500. You know what I mean? You could go to treatment there for $1,500. Mm, yeah, I, I put one mine there. My yeah. Kid, because of you. And, you know, and I, I well, love... It was $1,500 upon admission, right? It was, it was the, that was the copay. Yeah. Yeah. Fifteen hundred bucks, whatever the copay. I don't even know if they know how to bill insurance there. You know, and, and whether they whether <laughs> they, were they do happy or to don't, get fifteen hundred bucks. <laughs> and I, I and I can tell you what cost them more than anything is they were doing too much right. The pay phones on the wall. 
the yeah. no electronics, the no vaporizers, tobacco yeah, only. Yeah, when you, so you when you have a rehab, I think retail was sixty five hundred, but but you'd get fifteen hundred. And if you have Blue Cross HMO, maybe they're going to make two grand, four grand, or something, or or do drug tests for four thousand or something. But but when you're when you're just taking that kind of money. You can say fuck you all the time to the client. <laughs> hey, I want to talk to my dad. <laughs> fuck you. Yeah, no, they you didn't. I mean? they, like, they didn't. They uh, didn't let people go to the store. You put money on their books like yeah. it was jail, so they could buy their cigarettes and stuff. Yeah, they had a little store inside the, store. the rehab, and then they made twelve-step meetings like a gift. Like if you sign up and get to the van early yeah, enough, there's 12 you slots. may get there's to go to slots. the meeting tonight. And so they would fight for those slots. I'd, I'd talk to the kid, and he'd go. Uh, I wasn't able to get on the van and I was kind of fucked. <laughs> you know, but get him to go to a 12-step meeting right now? No way. 1500 a, a week available to him in Orange County. He can't get to one. So how sad is that, that it got closed down by the state for uh, doing something, whatever they did wrong? I, I You know, I, you know I, taking I, the most desperate cases that people, other people would Taking the worst of the worst, the people that nobody wants to even talk to. Like They, they were just... So great, and then now I've been dealing with it because I love I love Mike and Allison who own it, and and they helped me a lot. And we shot the TV show there. But I'll tell you an interesting thing about the TV show. So all the pitches of Celebrity Rehab, um, it was thought, and the hospital was open to that we were going to shoot Celebrity Rehab at Los Encinas Hospital because mm. everybody kind of thought like that's where Bob and Drew work, of course, and we had a residential treatment uh, building. It was off the property of the hospital. It was right adjacent. You walked across the parking lot, and the backside of the parking lot, there was this house, right, called Nash House. It's still there. And and we were just going to run the celebrity rehab in there. We did, The producers had been there. Everybody, we had talked to administration about it. So the idea was... Um, yeah, if you guys get this show and whatever, and we'll figure out how the rules are and how the laws are going to be, but you can probably shoot it at Nash House. So that, and this pitch and talking to trying to get it made lasts us like a, a year and a half. So finally we get the green light and we're a go and the money's in the bank and let's go, go, go. And lots of scenes goes, not a fucking chance. Like out of the blue. Hmm. And we were like, I was like, what? And he goes, Bob, like, you know, we see now what you're doing. It's all celebrities. Because at first it wasn't supposed to be celebrities. It was just supposed to be more normal people. And so for some reason or another. <laughs> normal. The parent company of the hospital group was like, there is no way we're being associated with a rehab television show at our facility. So this is at like the, you know, like right when we're supposed to shoot in like a month, right? And so me and Drew are sitting in his office and I go, PRC will go for it. And he was, <laughs> and Drew was like, Drew was yeah. like, call Mike. <laughs> like I called him and we called him that night and they said, yes, that night we could shoot the TV show there. Right. Nice. And so. I love it. It's a soft spot for me. And, and I've been hearing all this negative stuff from a lot of KDAC counselors and MFTs and marketing people and rehab people. Fucking PRC got closed down finally by the state. And I'm like, those finally. people are doing God's work for fucking $1,500. This is a sad day that PRC is closed. Right? Yeah. It's a, the day Pat Moore Foundation closed... I had this torn feeling, right? Because I was working in Laguna at the time. And I, I, I had heard they're going for profit, just like Claire had done when I lived up here, right? 
So I heard Claire Foundation is this great rehab. It's been around for 50 years. It's helped tens of thousands of homeless people get sober. And of course, in the gold rush of Obamacare and the Parity Act, they're going to go for profit. Claire is great because it's Claire. It ain't fucking cliffside or aloe or promises. Yeah. And when I heard that, I was like, who the fuck? Are you going to outsmart Aaron Brower and all these motherfuckers? Are you kidding me? No way. And then I heard that it closed. The Pat Moore Foundation has helped tens of thousands of addicts. And because of a few board members were greedy or whoever the fuck was at the top of it, decided they're going to go after insurance dollars. They ruined all that goodwill that they had established for decades in Orange County. To me, that's a worse sin than being a greedy Malibu fuck. To go from, <laughs> to go from altruistic uh-huh. hero that saved thousands of people's lives doing God's work for $63,000 a year driving a fucking Ford Pinto... To fucking, you're going to compete with the greedy motherfuckers of Malibu? Are you kidding me? You know, this this reminds me of how angry you got at how expensive the Bruce Springsteen tickets were. <laughs> oh, my God. The Broadway Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> it's just like, that motherfucker. Well, how can he beat people? He's of the people and he's charging $3,000 for a front row ticket. Singing songs about, I got a 69 Chevy with a 396. Fuely heads and a hearse on the floor. Thinking about he never think about Springsteen that I love. I'm a Bruce head, by the way, but he was never that guy. He grew up upper middle class. He tries to portray it as like poverty and Jersey. He's he's not what he says he is, but that's okay. Neither neither was fucking Woody Guthrie. You know what I mean? Woody Guthrie lived in fucking Connecticut or something. He did. <laughs> Mike, where did Woody Guthrie grow up? I don't know. I always thought he just lived on a train somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. But, I, didn't, I didn't know this. You're blowing my whole bubble but, about but, Woody Well, Guthrie. Google Arlo Guthrie and where he was born. They were born. He's like in Connecticut or something. Oh, yeah. Well, right? Yeah, you could be right. Or uh, Pennsylvania or something. something. Like a nice farmhouse. Like, dude, you're not fucking from the hood. Come on. But you don't have I mean, to be from the... he wasn't born in the... He didn't live in the Dust Bowl. Yeah, he didn't live in the Dust Bowl. And you don't <laughs> have to be from that to a, be able to express the feelings of that. John, John Steinbeck wasn't born in Oklahoma. Oh, isn't Jimmy isn't Ro- that true Jimmy about- Rogers never really moved up. He, Jimmy he, Rogers was one of the first millionaires in America. Like independent millionaires that wasn't a part of the Monopoly trains and whatever. Jimmy Rogers, the singing... <laughs> Brakeman, yodeling, yodeling Brakeman, (laughs) who portrayed himself as his hick from the sticks, was a millionaire at a time when a million dollars was like a billion dollars. Good for really? him. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, stop it. You're going to make Mike sad, don't but, you? But anyways, the idea that, that you, you choose one or the other, you choose the philanthropic being of service in the humble life, which has its own rewards. And one of the great rewards is that is everybody's respect. Respect is important. Being, being held in high regard hmm. is something they put on your tombstone, not your bank balance. You know what I mean? Isn't that a huge thing that's kind of lost, that people would rather be famous than be held in high regard? Yeah, I think, and, and I think it's getting so mixed now. You know, the, but, but the, the point is that rehab was this altruistic thing. It became, of course, people have made money through the years, and then all of a sudden it became this, you know, goldmine 
money-making bonanza about six or eight years ago, and now it's over. And all the people that only got into it to make a bunch of money are already gone. So do we really need to criticize the people that are remaining? You know what I mean? Uh, you know, you know I, I don't understand it because it's, you know, we don't speak, we try not to speak ill of the dead anyhow, because it doesn't do us a whole lot of good. It, to, there was so much I learned from watching what happened to PRC that it wouldn't matter to me if 10 people died there in 10 days. I know that there'd probably be good reason for it. Yeah, drug addicts die. Like, here's, 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 this is the other thing. So celebrity rehab, I, I told you somebody's going to die. I remember saying that at the initial meetings when they were talking about, because it was for a long time going to be normal people, and then it evolved into being celebrities, and then they were trying to talk about what celebrities th th that they would go after or ask if they would want to do it, and Jeff Conaway is a friend of mine, I said, well, and Jeff said he wanted to do it, right? And I remember saying to everyone in the room, like, if we're going to deal with people like Jeff Conaway, they're going to, somebody's going to die, right? And we say it all the time in rehab. We say it all the time on this show. I say it every day. Drug addicts die. When they live happy, productive lives, that surprises me. That they die does not surprise me. That Chris from Dopey died it does not surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that, that, that addicts die. You can't say that to the State Board of Equalization or he can't go, addicts die. That's what they do. So what happened was... <laughs> One of the few things they do well. So then if you remember, you know, Celebrity Rehab lasted seven years. So then, you know, that's 12 people per, that's 100 drug addicts, right? And now like 10 of them have died. And Drew gets crucified every time one of them dies. We tell the public all the time, drug addicts die. You're, we tell the clients that on the TV show. If you don't get sober, if you don't take this seriously, you're going to die. And then when they die, they blame Drew and I. It's well, cause crazy. Because it's, it's your fault. Well, because we exploit them and put them on television. Yeah, like, it, give oh, me a no, break. No, no. Uh, the same goodness. people that criticize celebrity rehab for putting uh, addicts on television are the same people that gobble up Kylie Kardashian's makeup and are making her a billionaire before she turns 30. Or even worse, the people that do the radar online and all the fuck, the dirt shows. Those people are busy making money off the, off the bottom end of, of everybody's actions. Everywhere they go, everything they do. Those are the, the that they're putting you trying to put you in that category. Yeah, that we are exploiting them and whatever. That you're the Listen, TMZ I, people. You know, the, the, no one. Here's an interesting thing too. Uh, nobody asks the people who are successful. You know who's sober? Steven Adler. How about that? I think that's fucking nuts. That? Is he still? Yeah, and he's into this four agreements. You ever heard of this thing? Yeah. He talks about it ad nauseum. Everybody he that is does. Me, everybody what? Everybody that is does. Is that what it Everybody is? I know that... <laughs> How do you know about the four agreements, because, Chuck? Because it's a little book. It's one of those little books that people read and it changes their lives and then they go, oh, but this is about the four agreements. It's like somebody all of a sudden going vegan. It's working for him. Well, I think that's fantastic. I just wish people would just, uh, just do their little four agreements. What are they... He's, he's told me it 10,000 times. Anyways... Uh, I'm going to look uh, it up just because it's one of those things. But somehow... I don't have my glasses. You know, I, I can't read. I love him and, and he'll tell you it was the greatest thing ever and it was fun and we hung out and just... It was, re it was rehab. And, and, you know, it's just so funny that, like, you try to say, rehab is this place where you enter 
a, a relationship with people to discover yourself, right? So that's what group therapy is. You're really, you're paying attention to other people, but then you, you re, if you internalize it and realize things about yourself, right? I think why it doesn't work so well is millennial generation doesn't have a lot of internalization. They have a lot of projected identification, yes. a lot of pointing out and admiration and, and a lot of outwardly thinking and moving rather than like, you know, you know, the, one of the first rehabs I went to, um, the woman said, how old are you? And I said, 27. And she said, oh, that's a good age to get sober. And I remember taking that like, that is a good age to get sober. And I'm sure she <laughs> said it to the next guy who was 29. Right. Like 20, that's, a, that's that the was, perfect it was age. A, it was a perfect thing to say. Like, yeah, that's a good age. Because a lot of times you're thinking I'm too young to get sober. At that time, 27 was too young to get sober. Now it's too old to get sober. <laughs> it's like crazy how when I was in 1988, I was 27. I was the second youngest person in the rehab. Now, if you go into any rehab anywhere, where you work, where I work, 27 would be one of the oldest people in the rehab. Wow. So that's a real... Are you, are you reading the four agreements? Yeah, I've got the four okay, agreements. Okay, tell me the four agreements. Maybe I... Wait, let, let's just stop for a second. Maybe we live by them and we just don't know. I, I think that most people that are able to maintain any sort of long-term... Anything, no matter what it is, I think we live. We try to live with it. Okay, let's go for the four and let's see. I, I think I think you absolutely do. Okay, so just, what's just the first one? Speak let's with, see if Mike does. Just, let's give Mike the test. Oh goodness, Mike, does Mike live the four agreements? Okay, let's, let's do go. it. Speak with integrity. He does. This is actually be impeccable with your words. He, so Mike Mart does speak with integrity. He does. Okay, so it's 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 about. Okay, Integrity so, means not to gossip. But yeah, it Mike doesn't hates, mean you always Mike know what rarely, you're talking about. Mike rarely <laughs> gossips about okay, th anybody. This is the breakdown. The, the actual agreement is be impeccable with your word. So you speak with integrity. You say only what you mean. You avoid using the word to speak against yourself or gossip about oh, others. Oh, I talk, I talk, I talk about my, negatively about myself. You use the power of your word in the direction of truth and love. I do that for the most part. And then, you know, the... You, I do gossip, though. I do love gossip. And I don't mind that people gossip about me. I know it, that people talk shit about me. I think it's great. That's just fucking too deep Don't take any, it's just, it's, you know, Don't take anything personally. Nothing others do is because of you. What others I do say and do is a projection of their own hey, dream. stop for one second. I do not take things personally, and, and people can hate me or disagree with me. I don't, I'm too old to care. But I do care what, like... Mike thinks of me, what you think of me, what Chrissy thinks of me, what Anthony thinks of me. I do care what the people in my life think of me, but I don't care what people, what the general... No, but, but isn't that shuffling the blame to somebody else, though, a little bit? Shouldn't you care what people think that in your life deeply that know you well care, think about you? Of course, they're the mirror of who I am. So, so what is that? Now read it again. It Maybe. says, nothing others do is because of you, what others say and do is a projection of their own dream. That's their shuffling. own dream? Gee, that's where it I'm gets losing. Hippies. That's a little too okay. hippie for okay. me. Don't, I don't know about that one. Don't I definitely, I would say, a majority of the first agreement I try to live by, Mike tries to live by, you try to live by. So we're good with number one. Number two is too confusing. <laughs> don't make assumptions is number three. 
Find the courage to ask questions and to express what you really want. Communicate with mm, others Wait a minute, clearly. though. Stop, stop. So I don't assume much anymore, but you can't get the truth out of people. But so the I Google... Kinda, I kind of give up. No, like the whole email thing. I just gave up and said, boy, like, I don't even know what to think. Please. <laughs> I said, all I said at the end was, please don't let it happen again. And then everything was over. And then it was over. But... I don't know. I don't know about that. So, okay, so I don't know that you can do that third one in a modern 21st century American well, world. Well, you can if you communicate with others as clearly as you can to avoid misunderstandings, sadness, and but drama. But emails confuse, confuse and well, misunderstood. This says, with just this one agreement, you can completely transform your life. Now, the last oh one. Oh, my God. That's the most important agreement? That is. Read it again. Okay. Don't make assumptions is the agreement. Don't make assumptions. Find the courage to ask questions and express what you really want. I assumed. Wait. I mean, that's good. That's that's like that's like not you know having uh, contempt prior to investigation. So Mike is uh, Mike is down with number three. But we all assume. I don't communicate know. clearly. Well, I guess this is for you know for people that don't ever uh, advocate for themselves. They don't know the difference between assertive and aggressive. You know, they sit back, the closed mouth that doesn't get fed. A lot of those people could benefit from this because you got to speak clearly. Wait, that, that sounded like an Orange County term. A closed mouth that never gets fed? A closed mouth doesn't get fed. You have to ask for food. Where did you learn that one? The Costa Mesa NA building? <laughs> Where did you learn that one from? <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> you heard that at a meeting. Uh, this, uh, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease is the same thing. That's a rehab term. Okay, but why the squeaky wheels make a noise? Time. You know what I teach? I teach the exact opposite of the squeaky wheel gets the thing. So, getting back to MFTs and rehab and how it works, I always tell staff when I'm trying to teach, don't pay so much attention to the people who don't want to be here and fight everything and argue. Try to ignore them and focus in on the people who are willing and want to be here because it's a natural clinical kind of helping field thing to go toe-to-toe with the person who wants to argue about god or doesn't want to do their assignment or keeps complaining and to get all so they suck all the attention from the staff Mm -hmm. and the people sitting over here that do all the right things are like what the fuck am i here for yeah right right it's an important thing in rehab it's it's a huge thing to try and catch people doing something right in rehab you gotta catch them doing something your son can we talk about your son was with me he was an angel i know that you know i know he's not but he did everything right. He did everything like how I wanted it in the sober house and stuff. And a lot of times he felt like I don't give him enough attention because I'm paying attention to the guys that are OD. Like, the fuck. dicks. No, yeah. <laughs> or fighting with everybody. Yeah, yeah fighting. Or don't, yeah. You know, the, 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 so, so it is true in rehab. If it's a, if it's a, if it's a non-attentive, non-aware rehab, only the squeaky wheels get the attention, and the people doing the right thing don't. Yeah. Right? And so the, so, so the, the fourth one is what? Always do your best. I do try to always do my best. Who, who doesn't? I mean, that's a part of... Otherwise, No, I millennials don't try to do their best. <laughs> they don't. Oh, no. There's a they whole don't. generation of people that will never do their best. You know, I don't want to say that there's not some good millennials, but I've yet to meet them. Oh. <laughs> oh, I, I was so proud of the way you handled that that whole thing on the television to segue. You you did that thing with HLN, which I didn't even know was headline news, but you did that thing and you were going, now, you know, millennials. 
uh, and I was like, oh, shit, here it comes. He's going to be on TV talking shit about millennials. He go, and you go, you know, they have their good points. Like, they're good, like, with technology and shit, I guess. But but they're just really dumb or something. But I was just like, oh, he's so good. He, he gave them a compliment, he and you didn't go too deep. I was so proud of you. But but you're see, this is where I try to. So I'm I'm coming from a glass is always half empty mindset and birthright. That was how my mom thought. That's how my family thinks still. The house is the the glass is always half empty. You're always getting fucked, right? And you are coming from the glasses half full mindset, I think, uh, right? Probably, Even as yeah. a junkie, you were like, we still got to dope. <laughs> just a little bit. Because <laughs> I'd be like, we don't have enough for the both of us. Like, this is fucked. Tomorrow's going to be fucked. To- now is fucked. Well, you that's know, when I that was my constant that's state of mind. And Chuck, Chuck was like, "We do have a little. We still got." And then I go, "Shit, where'd I put it?" <laughs> and then I'd send you out looking for it to go get more money, and I'd finish it. <laughs> oh, so, sorry, so, but that's what we so, do. So, but well, Chuck, Chuck is focused on not, you know, alienating his millennial. I think, yeah, you know? the population, right? So, and, and that's good. But I'm able to create a bond with millennials. I really do. I have a lot of millennial friends. Like they, <laughs> they, they say the same. They thing? agree with me about their generation. I hate to say it. It's weird, right? So the ones that are ambitious, like all the Ryan, you know, a lot of the yeah. Max and Ryan are millennials. They're fucking highly motivated. Kids. Well, I think that's one of the things you did tell me about. Uh, Mike, it was that you go, you can only do the problem is he's a motivated individual, and that puts him, it makes him an outcast in his generation. And this is before I had it's even true. started looking at it as such. And then it's just like, you know what, even when he's, he's fouling up, even when he's, even job, when he's fouling he's up, always, he's still got a hustle. He's always got yeah. a hustle. He's always got something so going So that's old school. That's more Generation X or, or late baby boomers. He, your, your son has that. All the, a lot of the guys at my house had that. See, this, right? this, is a, this is a cop out. This Always do your best. This is why I struggle with this thing. Because it says, your best is different when you are healthy as opposed to sick. Okay. So sometimes your best isn't going to be your best. Well, it's going to be your Young, best based on your feelings. Well, Mike, what is the line from Neil Young? He tried to do his best, but he could not. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Neil Young. Wait That's a, a second. Neil, it's a Neil Young song about a junkie. So, so he, he tried to do his best, but he could not. <laughs> I agree that your best is not good enough when you're sick. <laughs> okay. When you're sick. Mike is a four agreements guy. I think, uh, yeah. Mike, have you ever heard of the four agreements? Listen, my best when I was using was not very good. But but it was but you were trying to do your best, but he could not. <laughs> <laughs> Again. So okay, okay the right. last part please the, the, here's what the Neil Young song. Remember, Mike? We we used to do it. Felony Swanson did it. goes, please take my advice. Please take my advice. He tried to do his best, but he could not. So then Neil Young was speaking to the millennials. He was speaking to Danny Witten, his guitar player, who died of a drug overdose. Oh, yeah. But millennials millennials are kind of like a whole generation of drug addicts. Yeah, true. They've been right? called that. The lost generation. Are they? Have they been called the lost I, I, generation? That's, that's what I've heard. Wow. So get this. I worked in a movie a couple uh, weekend before last. And there's this 
there's this spot on what's called AD, assistant director. Like they're the ones that tell you get in your spot. You have your lines okay or whatever. They tell you you have five minutes until you get makeup or whatever. And and there's and I did three days, four, three, five days of shooting. I played, at ten thousand dollars a day. That's no, crazy. At zero dollars a day. <laughs> I played a drug counselor in an that's independent movie. That's a lot movie. less. Yeah, that's so, a lot less. So this this girl is like, and she presents like mature and just like she tells me what to do. Like very few people can get my attention. Like she goes. Bobby, I have five minutes till you need to be, be downstairs. And I was like, you know, part of me is like, I'm doing this for free. Don't talk to me like that. But I did what this girl said all the time. So the second day, the director tells me, you know, and I see the girl telling the director what to do. We need to switch. We've, we've been on this shot for 40 minutes. We need, to, we need to move on. She's telling the director of the movie that. So, right? okay. And the director, the woman does it. Like, okay, we're going to, whatever we got, I'm going to have to make it work in editing. Let's move on. So, and, and so, and, and, and the fifth, fourth day that I'm working on this movie, the, so the, the producer tells me the I said, you know, that go-getter girl, like, and she goes, oh, her dad, her dad is, over here, is, is so-and-so. And I said, what? And I knew the dad because I'd met him in the beginning. Uh, he's like 36. And I'm like, how the fuck old is she? And she goes, she's 16. She's already directed her first feature film. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, so that's then I'm like, the generation you're that's 60. Up. That's the generation that's coming. That's after millennials. Telling 50-year-old yeah. directors what to do. Ones that are not doing their best. <laughs> Apparently, you weren't so, doing your best so that day. So guess what I did once I had a little time spare? <laughs> I interviewed her. I was like, what do you think of millennials? And she's like, I try not to think about things that aren't my business. That's oh, a, she's, wow. she's probably li living by the agreements, right? She, and, and I said, don't you get nervous telling Conscience is the director's name. Don't you get nervous talking to Conscience that way? And she goes, they've hired me to do this job. Oh, <laughs> right? Like, fuck. Where do they make people hope, like you? I hope you shook her dad's <laughs> hand. I hope you went up to her dad and yeah, said, yeah, you, yeah. sir, did, did the work. But I think it's something that's coming behind. I think it's a reaction to millennials. There's a generation coming that stay in their lane intuitively, neurobiologically. Like, they've seen all the bullshit that just happened in front of them while they were eight years old. And they're like having none of it. Oh, you're using a little bit of Chuck there, a little staying in your lane. Yeah, stay in your lane. Hmm. Oh, right? no, that was you. That was you that were talking about staying well, in your lane. I like that. My friend Ron always tells me stay in my lane because I get oh. all these big dreams. Like, Yeah, I had that confused. Maybe, yeah, I that should, maybe I should do this. And he's like, why don't you stay in your lane? But I love that. Right? Staying in my lane means stay in the rehab business. Yeah, no, business. I, 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 I get it that we have lanes in the rehab business itself. Uh, why don't you worry about what's happening in well, the house? I'll worry about what's happening here. No, I get it. And I thought about this, so, so in, I wanted to wrap up the show by saying why we have the show. We're experienced clinicians, been doing this for decades. I'm going to tell you all of the jobs I've had in rehab. And then I want you to tell, you know, tell all the jobs you've had in rehab, and that's how we're going to end it. Because the people who are working in rehab have had one job, that job, MFT. You are case manager. They have never done, they don't understand what rehab is. I think that's a part of the problem. So my first job in rehab was driving people to treatment for MAP. 
right? Hmm. So I was the guy, Buddy Arnold would call me and go, I got a guy, you got to drive him out to, to, to the ranch, right? That was my first volunteer job in a rehab, 1996. Buddy Arnold would call me and say, come to the office, you got to drive this guy out to the ranch, which is in Desert Hot Springs. Great rehab, by the way. Um, Rick, what is the guy's last name? Rick, greatest rehab. It's called the ranch in Desert Hot Springs. Um, or drive this guy out to cry help. Make sure he checks in. Stay with him the whole time, right? Because he's a little squirrely guy that didn't want to check in, right? Mm -hmm. So my first job was just driving people to rehab. Second job was there doing alumni at MAP. So making sure alumni stay connected to the fundraisers and get alumni data and all that kind of stuff. So I'm data, I'm transportation and data, first two jobs. Second, the third job was also at MAP was um, go back to school and you're going to co-facilitate groups with me. I co-facilitated groups with Buddy Arnold. He taught me how to run groups, right? And I'm going to school. And, I'm, I, uh, and finally, after about a year of just sitting in and he would let me take over the group or the groups, you know how groups are. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, they're not the way they used to be, right? So, so finally, one day, we're walking to the group room and he goes, you know what? You're on your own. Thursdays are your group, right? Because they had groups Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at MAP. Okay. And so Thursdays, he gave me the group. It's my group. And I'm going to school and I'm running that group. Right? Then the next job was um, intake at there. So I'm running the group and intake, and that's when we became a, a, a paid employee. So, so far, it's still not even getting paid. But I then ran groups and did the intakes, all the paperwork of getting them into treatment. Right? So I'm now doing intake, running groups, transportation. Then the MAP thing, I then became the clinical director at MAP once I got my certification, and then did that for about a year, and then the whole thing fell to shit and merged with Music Cares, and there was no job for me. I went back. I was the nighttime tech at Pasadena <coughs> Recovery Center in 2001. I did overnights, 11 to 7, <coughs> making, yeah. sure, making sure drug addicts didn't fuck mm -hmm. or get drugs brought to them. That was my job. I was 40 years old. I had already been the director of a nonprofit drug program. And now I'm back at the bottom of the barrel, overnight tech. Right? Mm -hmm. Then I become day tech. Then I became counselor of all the people nobody wants to counsel. Right? They made this category of all the psych patients and antisocial musicians and near-do-wells and suicidal clients nobody else wanted. That was my caseload. And then, and then I became the uh, lead counselor, eventually, at Pasadena Recovery Center. Then I went and ran the outpatient program for Dr. Drew at Los Encinas. Then I became the daytime main unit counselor. Then I became the lead counselor. Then I became the program director. Then I became the clinical director in a hospital over nine years. By this time, 2010, I've been working in treatment for 14 years. I still make $21 an hour. These people that want to make $35 an hour because they went to fucking junior college to become an MFP, <laughs> fuck you. Now, what about Chuck? Fuck what about you. Chuck, what Chuck, was yours? You go. Uh, my, first, my first job working in recovery was at Buena Park Community Hospital 
for Dr. William Bennett. And that at that time, it was all, all you needed was 90 days clean. And what did you do, tech? Yeah, absolutely. Overnight or you uh, remained? I started, I started off daytime. Did, was the fact that you, you're a pretty tall, big guy helpful as a tech? It helps remove people sometimes. <laughs> sometimes you need to I remove think, people. I think what held me back in the tech world was I'm kind of small and, can you say faggy nowadays? <laughs> you can't say that. That's a bad word. Bleep that word out, Mike. I could be sued for saying that word. Wimpy. Effeminate. Wimpy. Effeminate. Wimpy. Effeminate? But you know what? That, that, and I think that really serves people well eh, to not faggy, be because... Whatever, what, what, <laughs> what, you know, once you, once you reach like six foot... There's like, that's the size that everybody wants to fuck with you because you're not you're so, so, yeah, 6'2", I'm at that height where it's just like the little guys can reach up and sock you in the nose and the big guys don't think you're too little to hit. So you're just in the everybody is, is willing to swing on you. But I, but you still there's got somebody, the job. There, there's somebody getting rowdy. Let's call Chuck. But you're right. You, but you got right. the job, whereas I think they, they, if they had the choice for tech in 2004, like Bob Forrest or Chuck, well, I'm going to go with Chuck. Uh, he's he's just a little he just seems like a little better attack than bob my question is did they choose luisha over you to go in and handle somebody oh always yeah always she's pretty tough also also having a female is good because it's disarming she's she's intimidating yeah she's like what the fuck are you doing and the person like could have a knife in their hand, they drop it. <laughs> so, so I okay, yeah. so, so you're tech at a hospital. And then, and then I, I didn't get a, I didn't get a proper license to drive them around the van, so I went to overnights. Oh yeah, you have to have, you have to be insurable. I remember right. that. And I was a terrible driver. I like to hit things and drive drunk, so it's like I was, a, I was a hazard. So it's like one of those things where, by the end of that year working there. I was done. I had moved from Long Beach to real L.A. And um, I, I moved and I was... I was Like the Jeffersons moving on up? I, I moved to Hollywood. I lived, moved to um, Sunset and Highland. Oh, great. I moved right, right into Silver Lake with <laughs> those, those guys from... like Chris from, said, uh, like Slauson. From, from <laughs> Gospel Beach and the Tide and Beachwood Sparks. Oh, the Tide, Sparks. right. Those, those, I lived with Darren and Brent Randemaker up there. So I, anyway, so I, I, I loved up, Beachwood Sparks. So, God, they were so fucking good. I lived, There's a band that really should have been huge. Yeah. I thought they were great. They were. Yeah, they they, were, they, they, they the most good. reminded me of Graham Parsons and and Flying Burrito Brothers. And, you know, and okay, he would love so to go hear on, that. Okay, so go on. Go yeah, on. You know, and, and Brent would love that. But you know, so that was it. Was a long time before I got back into the sober community. So I did it. So you were loaded. I was loaded uh, from 86 to 91. So you didn't work in treatment at all? No. No, I didn't. And then in, in 91, I was sober for a year. So then it was 12-step stuff only, but dedicated 12-step stuff. In 94, I was sober for about a year, and it was dedicated 12-step stuff. In 97, when I got sober, I was with Dog on the Roof, uh, who are a group of AA people where we did more 12-step calls when it was actual 12-step calls, getting calls from you know, uh, central office and going and picking people up, taking them to meetings, getting them to places, doing all that What's stuff. It? What was it called? Dog on the Roof. Dog on the Roof? It was, it was, it was a home group and, a, uh, and we had sober living houses. It was after I went through Cooper Fellowship this last time. So I went to Stanton Detox, Cooper Fellowship, and then hooked up with Dog on the Roof. I lived in a dog house. 
Uh, I did everything dog on the roof for three years. You lived in a dog house? Well, that's what they called the house, oh, is okay. the sober livings. And they were sober livings? Yeah, but they were, they were uh, our group. We had about 60 guys, and we had our own meeting hall. We had a, uh, a shop where we built. So that's a rehab. Yeah, but I was but I was there. But that's a rehab that that doesn't qualify to get insurance money. Oh no. MAP was a rehab that didn't qualify to get insurance money. Right. It was a real rehab. MAP was a real rehab. That sounds like a real rehab to me where people get sober and other people help them realize things and and build structure and around them it had them. points it certainly had its ups man it, it certainly helped me i mean if, if you know just it, because you call it a rehab doesn't make it a rehab and just because you say it doesn't it can't bill insurance doesn't mean it's not a rehab and i think it saved a lot of people that wouldn't have gotten right, help anywhere that's else what i'm talking about. and that sort of intensive one-on-one work is what sparked the desire in me to do it again when uh and but, then you went to school but, again but i went no i i left there and around I wanted to get my GED before my oldest kid did, before he graduated high school. That's a good motivator. Yeah, so I I did. I went to school, and then my wife pushed me to to go further. She said, you want to work in this? Because I started looking at it. I wanted to get back in there. I go, you know. Okay, what year is that? uh, 2005. You knew Curtis, right? Curtis, the marketer guy, LA guy, worked for Warren. No. Oh, okay. So he died in a motorcycle accident. I'm sure you heard about that. He's a great guy, right? So he was right at that stage, that same time, 2007. And he was working as a sober companion. I said, dude, why don't you go to school and become a real counselor? And he's like, well, I mean, it's entry-level counselor. I said, yeah, but you really actually are, you learned something and you applied yourself and you became a certified something. It's not like, I don't know what a sober companion is. I did that for a while, too. But what made you not just want to make sober companion money forever and never become a professional clinician? Why did you go to school? Your wife? Uh, Well, she said, you know what, hey, the one one job you enjoyed was way back when, in, in 1986... Working in a when hospital. you were working in the hospital, yeah. you felt you know it's one of those things where I'd been making money. I was I was building electrical control panels for this company. I was making I was making money. I took a ten dollar an hour cut to get back into Me too. doing what we do. I was delivering pizza and took a pay cut. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it, it's embarrassing. How about that, you MFTs? <laughs> you know, I was delivering pizza at Millie's Pizza in Silver Lake, and I was I was coming home. I was getting. Uh, $10 an hour plus tips. I was walking out with 150 bucks every night. I go to work in a rehab and make $86 a day. Uh, you <laughs> and know Chuck, so after 2005. Oh, you know what? And I said that wrong. We lived on Hollywood and Hamilton, which is way sober. Oh. Yeah. But it, I said Highland for some reason. You remember anyway. Millie's Pizza? No, I don't. It's right next to Millie's Restaurant. No, I don't. Because do. I, I, started, I started a heavy drinking and thing going on. I, I, okay, I, let's I, go. Anyway. 2005. So, so then now, now I start going to school, and now I'm interning at, at, um, at Phoenix House. Oh, in Santa Ana? Yeah, on Fruit you Street. You worked at Phoenix House? Yeah, I, I did. That is fucking hardcore. It was, it was but it was the real thing. And I, I, That's I mean, a little beyond the real thing. My nephew was in there. That's beyond cry help. Yeah, but it wasn't. That is beyond but it cry wasn't, help. But it wasn't the shouting stuff that everybody, they had mellowed a little bit by then. What was your abbreviated title there? Oh, uh, then I was just, I was, I was an yeah. intern. Oh. 
But you were. I'm an I'm an intern. So you no, know, you are a registered recovery worker. R- yeah, R R W R R W R R W Mike. All right, just check. And there was zero money in that, and I was doing that, you know, like 20 hours a week or something. Minimum wage and nothing, nothing, getting nothing. I was working full time, going to school, and interning and doing that. Yeah, I had to do three semesters of internship before i could even start doing oh anything i else. forgot so, you know the blessing in my career was buddy arnold he would say to this is what he would say nobody nobody worth their shit doesn't get paid so you're gonna get paid <laughs> and then but then he would rush your hours he'd be irritated he'd go yeah i would say i need you to sign my supervised hours and he'd go how many do you need just get a paper and write them all down let me sign them all at once <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I think a lot of people do that. I think I, I think that happens more often than I don't not think with people. I don't think he can anymore. No, I'll tell you, it was rough to put my hours together because then I was doing... Like you get eight and four. I remember getting four hours supervised. I'm like, why the fuck did I even come here? Right. For four hours, I need 1,500 hours. Well, yeah, and it turned into 2,280 is what I needed just to be a entry-level Cat C so I could drop the intro. So what happened How many after hours? the Phoenix house? Uh after Phoenix House went to New Beginning Fellowship and just did anger management because they allowed me to do anger management you get paid groups. For that. I started getting paid for that. Per group. Uh, getting uh, $45 yeah, a group. Yeah, per group, right. I which which is a, uh, it's far enough back. I used back. to teach drunk driving and get you Where got, is you New Beginnings? $50. Where New is New Beginnings in Fountain Valley? Oh. It's Valley. by the... Uh, by the recreation Not to be there. confused with new perceptions. No, not at all. And, you know, there's a, there's an Alana Club attached there, and there's a lot of, like, 12-step work that I did there, too, that was not paid for. But the then from there, then it was um, solid landings where I finally, you know, six years ago, five, six years ago, where I was finally Jeremy, full-time. What's the guy that saw that? Oh, God. They Jeremy? Were, they were... You know, I don't, I don't even recall. He's a good guy. But I'll tell you that we grew that business. When I started there, there were like 100 of us, and there were like 800 of us when I left. No, okay, later. that's the one that went bus saw the landings? Yeah. Oh, what was the one that's down the street a little bit? That guy's cool. There's another one on the same block. Um, I don't know. We were on Bristol. I don't know. Yeah, Bristol. And if you go north on Bristol, about eight buildings, there's another big rehab there. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That I, guy, that guy at that other rehab is cool. I went in, I went in days and ended up working nights, and couldn't get any hours signed off because I was working nights. And I went on and I was sitting graveyard on a single house, and dealing with everything that happens in a single house. And when you do that well, then they end, I ended up being a graveyard supervisor, which meant I had fifteen houses to see over, oversee at night. How much did they pay you for that? Uh, started me at twelve dollars and fifty cents an hour. Nice. Twelve dollars. That's a dollar a house. <laughs> think about that you're yeah, responsible so. overnight for a house you get a dollar oh, so cool and, and, and not only that but you know you're talking about somebody who's like 40 years old and i mean he's making no money i was we we're talking i was talking with my friend jack on the way up here he was going you know what if it weren't for my wife and her doing what she did and having the steady job and her pushing me to do what i wanted to do uh, there's no there's way, no way you can survive. No, because not only that, but when I was doing school, it would took me two and a half years to get my 36 guess units. How, guess how I did it. So, so the Bicycle Thief was a band, right? And we got signed to a major label when I was 38 years old, which is very rare. Mike also did that with Sweet and Low. Yeah. Low and Sweet. Low and Sweet. Um, so I'm 38 years old, and like no 38-year-olds get a record deal. And so then the band slowly dissolved and kind of just became me, right? Josh quit to be in 
PJ Harvey or Butthole Surfers or something, and then there was no other. The it was just me, and so then we didn't. We had a two album firm deal, and when the first album bombed, they didn't want to make the second record, so they bought me out. That's the only way I could have become a counselor. I had like seventy five thousand dollar buyout. Oh, nice! And that's how I could work for free or for ten dollars an hour for years and years. Is I had that money to live off of to pay right. my rent. It's rough. It's rough when you're going to school, when you're working 45 hours a week and going to school at night and trying to make things work. And then once you finally get into it, there was, there was absolutely zero money in it. But I think that people should get paid. I think when you're a student at SID, you should be paid. And at Allo, we pay everybody. Nobody's working for free. But, but the entitlement that you should work, make $35 an hour as soon as you become licensed, that's what I think is crazy. Like, nobody's worth $35 an hour, in my opinion. I'm not. I shouldn't be paid $35 <laughs> an hour. Yeah, you should. Why not? It's impossible to, to, have, to, to then do cost-effective care for the community if MFTs need to make $30 an hour or nurses need to make $35 an hour. Right? And then the entitlement of the staff that they should be paid these inflated things because they went to junior college for two years. I don't <laughs> fucking care. Have you ever been a tech? Have you ever been a driver? Have you ever worked in intake? Have you ever fucking worked in an outpatient program? Have you ever run a sober living? That's what matters to me. Not what, you, not what your license says. You Have understand? you ever shot oh, dope in your neck? <laughs> well, yeah. I've never done that. Have you done that? I haven't ever had to. I've always, I've always had veins. I had a girl I knew. You know how girls lose. It's the same. You know how girls lose all their veins. I had a girl I knew shot up in the in the blood vessel in her forehead, and she was an expert at it. And she could do it looking in the mirror. I was like, how the fuck does she do that? I'm scared to do it in my arm. And she's just sitting there, calm as a cucumber, hitting her vein in her forehead. Oh yeah. <laughs> Mike, Mike, Mike just, just, Mike just, just, Mike just fell in love. Oh, just yeah. Straight to the brain, man. It's so close to the nerve center. That sounded like Barry White for a second. Oh, yeah. Did you did you just become attracted to my verbal image of a junkie girl? But but Chuck uh, okay, goes, you know. But the, I want to real 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 quick. Is there was uh, sober companion, no, safe new, transport. No, but there new was beginnings new beginnings to, um, to, to solid landings solid to landings where Chapman. To, no, to um, Serenity Shores. To you don't even Chapman. know the name of it. Yeah, it was Serenity, Serenity Shores. Serenity, Serenity, Shores. Serenity Shores. It's a place you came down and talked. I had you come down and talk yeah. there oh, okay. in Costa Mesa. Oh yeah, I still think about that place. That's the place still there. Yeah, no, it's not. It's moved. It's gone on different, and then saved, and then Chapman, I and then I saved somebody's life in that parking lot. Really? Yeah. A lot of right people die in that parking that lot. Group. Right. <laughs> well, one guy got saved. <laughs> His name's Tom. Still sober. Oh, good deal. He called me. I got in my car. You know how when you get in your car and your Bluetooth is hooked up and you don't mean to answer your phone, but somehow it gets answered? <laughs> and I got nope. in my car after I saw you at that Serenity Knowles. I thought it was called Serenity Knowles. Serenity Shores. I kept telling everybody, Chuck works at the three up called Serenity Knowles. It's really good. It's really <laughs> grassroots, street level. Serenity Knowles. You're so good with names. Serenity Knowles. <laughs> anyway, so I get in my car after this inspirational thing where the patients are so grateful. It was really a cool place, I thought. I thoroughly enjoyed Anyways. my time there. But where did you work? So Serenity Knowles and Chapman, and now where you're at. Yeah, and then also doing the the sober partner thing or whatever you want to call it. And the, oh, the, the van? The safe travel. The, no, that was where... Isn't no, it a Winnebago? No, no, no. We... uh. 
I would go and I'd... Isn't there I'd, a Winnebago no, that's like as you serve a rehab thing? No, no. It wasn't that. It was, it was hanging out with people. Literally sitting on them, babysitting them, keeping them from getting drunk or helping them get to a rehab. So it was safe transport and sober companion stuff. Right. I, I, so, so you started in 1986. I started in 1996. Right. And I've been working ever since, since 1996, pretty much. For some reason, there's this weird category of helping field called rehab, drug and alcohol treatment. It really is just caring and re-entering a frame of love with another human being or with a, a group of peers or with a group of sober people. That's what AA is. That's what good rehabs are. That's what sobriety is. I interfaced with Mike was sober five years. I admired him. I looked up to him. He was worse than me, and he was living a great life. That's a chain of love and understanding and, and connection that doesn't exist in society. It only exists in sobriety. And so when we, when we belittle that or don't value that and say Suboxone is a solution or pot is a solution or rehab's a solution or healing your trauma is a solution, nah, yeah, that's all well and good. Whatever you want to fucking do, I don't care. But it's really us becoming connected again. Yeah, I like it. All right, so until next time, fuck all y'all. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> no. Fuck all y'all. <laughs> That's my favorite ice cube line. <laughs> all right, everybody, don't die, man. Yeah, That's the biggest die. thing, you know? Just stay alive until you can get the sobriety thing, man. Yeah. I hear, I hear. Peace out. See you later, later. Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call. <laughs>